podcast world what's up chad belding here this life ain't for everybody podcast i love this episode i love this guy's career sitting down with him in nashville was a was an honor and um over 5,400 games umpired 45 seasons in major league baseball umpiring so many great games called the world series when it came back to wrigley field and the chicago cubs um he did it all he got to see some of the greatest baseball performances record set players playing he's just a great dude loves country music he actually has country albums out there we're going to be playing some of them on the joe west podcast coming up but joe west is just an awesome american individual who had a huge passion for baseball and made a career out of it and broke records over 5400 games umpired and he hung it up after 45 years of service he's a friend of ours now we're uh humbled to say the least but this episode of this life ain't for everybody podcast mr joe s brought to you again by the one and only tennessee sour mash whiskey i actually enjoyed one of these with joe during the recording of this conversation podcast Lynchburg, Tennessee. Jack Daniels, enjoy it responsibly. Never allow underage drinking. Please make sure that you enjoy it in moderation. But Jack Daniels has it going on with all their entire rapport, their entire arsenal. Every one of their selections from the old number seven to the gentleman Jack to the single barrel to the Sinatra to the gold to the new bonded, the new triple mash, the flavors like Tennessee fire, apple and honey. Thank you, Jack Daniels, for believing in us and our podcast brands. Joe West, this life ain't for everybody. I hope you all enjoy this conversation. He's a hoot. He, we will have him back soon for part two. We have so much more to talk about. I hope you all enjoy Joe West, this life ain't for everybody. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I got to ask you this first. Why Nashville so much? You got a fascination with country music or you just got a bunch of family or friends here? Well, I got a lot of good friends here. One of my best friends is uh, who just passed away a little while ago was John A. Hobbs. He, he kind of built this area of town out here in uh, Music Valley. And uh, he was a construction guy. He, he was in the service in World War II and he, he came back home and he, he built up a, a construction empire for his family here and he built the Fiddler's Inn and he built, he built the first Nashville Palace and uh, Lord have mercy, his, his, one of his first dishwashers was Randy Travis. <laughs> so he had waitresses named Lori Morgan and Tanya Tucker so it was easy to befriend him and he, he liked baseball, he liked to come to spring training every year down in Florida. And we'd take him to the games and stuff. And uh, but he, he was a longtime friend. And I know his his sons and his grandson. You know his grandson Barrett, who who owns the palace now. And so they've been friends for a long time. So it's a lot of fun to come back and visit. And you have a, a huge admiration for country music, right? Oh yeah. I just uh, you know growing up in Eastern North Carolina, it was easy to to pick up on that. I can, I can remember one of the first times I saw Merle Haggard play. It was in a gymnasium in Aiden Grifton High School. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest singer in the world, and he's playing a gymnasium in Aiden Grifton High School. And it was awesome because he had special people in the band that performed with him, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a neat deal. And years later, uh, I befriended him and his uh, ex-wife, Bonnie Owens, and I used to go see him whenever I was on the West Coast. And In fact, we spent New Year's with him, and. George Jones and Conway Twitty uh, in Reno. So uh, I, I've been lucky. This, this job has opened a lot of doors for me. I'm from Reno. 
Really? Yeah. yeah. That's where I live now. Little arena, where'd you hang out with them at? The Shy Clown? No, it, it was at the the hotel they were playing their show at. I don't even remember the name of the hotel now, but it was, uh, back then it was called the Legends Tour because the three of them would perform. George would perform first because he had the smallest band and, and then Conway would perform second and then Merle because he had, he had an orchestra played behind him. So he was the last band that would go on, so. There's some correlation there because you take like Merle, Conway, and then you got Roddy Millsap, you got George Strait, and those are like in the top five of the most number one hits in country oh, yeah. music history, right? Yeah. But you got the record for most games ever <laughs> umpired, which is like, that's a huge thing because um, that's nine innings a night, 162 games a year. You umpired 5,400 games or more, somewhere in that yeah. area right there, major league record. Yeah. You look back on it and, and look at it like, man, that's a lot of minutes spent on a baseball field. Because when I walk into a baseball field, Mr. Joe West, like I, I lose it. Like I get goosebumps. I like because all I ever wanted in life was to be a baseball player in the major leagues. That's all I ever wanted. Do you still get that when you see it? When you see it, or smell the peanuts, or see the cold beer, or did it get old to you? You know, when you walk out of that tunnel to go out on the field and you realize, okay, now it's time to work. You know, there, there's no rehearsal. There's no. I mean, when you when you go out and make the first call, that's it's for real, and uh, that's the uniqueness of it. But, Something really unique about the whole thing is every time you go out there, you're witnessing a piece of history. You're part of a piece of history. I had first base when Nolan Ryan threw his fifth no-hitter. No one had ever thrown more than four. Koufax had four, and, and Ryan threw his fifth no-hitter in the Astrodome. And they, he did it against the Dodgers, which was a pretty good team. And that year, the Dodgers went on to win the World Series. I had Willie McCovey's 500th home run. Uh, I, I think I had... Uh, uh, Albert Pujols' 400th home run behind the plate. I had uh, the only no hitter I ever had behind the plate was Clay Buchholz, and I think it was only his second start. <laughs> now I've had like 12 others, but they were all on the bases. They're all the bases. You know, uh, you're you're witnessing a piece of history every day, and some days the history is a little bit bigger than others. Let's talk about history when you mention home runs for a second. Did you know as a is just a human being what was going on in the quote-unquote steroid era. I've asked several announcers, I've asked many coaches, base coaches, like when Bonds was doing that or McGuire would take BP, they said he hits the ball further than we've ever seen in our life. Like, like I had Kruko on the show and he says, I would sneak out at Bush Stadium just to watch Big Mac take BP and he was hitting balls 510 feet, which would never been done in MLB. Did you know as an umpire what was going on when Sosa was hitting the bombs that far? Well, you got you got to think they they had a little more help and the doctors were helping them and and I'm sure that whenever they'd come up with something to test them for something illegal, they would find something to you know react against it. But you got to remember, Mark McGuire was a big boy. Yeah, he was huge. The the guys that hit the longest home runs before him were guys like Mickey Mantle. And Mickey Mantle was barely six feet tall. I don't even know if he was six feet tall. But, uh, and he had tremendous power, tremendous bat speed. But Mark McGuire, when he launched him, he could really launch Another guy that played with McGuire, Canseco, he could really hit him a long way. And he admitted he was on steroids. Mark never admitted he was on those kind of steroids. And, um, but they didn't police those back then. And you gotta remember when he had the, that run to hit all those home runs and Sosha had the run to hit all his home runs, they were recovering from a bad labor situation where they had shut down baseball in 94. So baseball welcomed the fact that there was more excitement, more offense, more energy in the game than they'd ever had before. So they kind of turned a blind eye to that. And it was the Players Association 
that made them open their eyes because they said enough's enough. But it's kind of weird to me that like somebody like Sea League and the commissioners at the time would say, the seats are full, the merch is selling, the parking lot, the, the, every, the cold beer, hot dogs are selling more than ever. Yeah. Every stadium was full. The long ball is what put asses in the seats at the time. Yeah. Bonds was doing his thing. You had Sosa, you had Ramirez, you had Albert Pujols, who has still never found you know, that he was on him, but he's going to be a 600 home run, six, seven, close to 700 home runs. Barry Bonds breaks the major league home run record by Henry Aaron. It's, it's just weird to me that years down the road that you have guys like Barry Bonds that aren't in the Hall of Fame. He's, he's considered by me, and you might argue this, he's one of, if not the best player all around of all time, like his uncle Willie Mays. The guy did things on the field that were tremendous, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. Then there's pitchers that were on the steroids yes. that, were, that they knew were trying to battle these guys that were on the steroids. Yeah, and now that, Roger Clemens got seven no-nos, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. It's just crazy to me. Well, that's, that's what is tarnish the game a little bit is is and like you said they were making a lot of money off the fact that there was more offense in the game and uh and like i said the players were the ones that really stopped it they went to their own association and said enough's enough it's not fair that this guy's getting paid this amount of money and he's what they call cheating and then again you have to look at uh, the fact that they're holding people out of the hall of fame for rumors or testimony that said he was on it, he wasn't on it, and so on and so I mean, it took Bijou and Bagwell extra years to get in the Hall of Fame because they wouldn't put Barry Bonds in. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so it's held up the process. It has not made it where it's as, as even a playing field as it should be. But then again, the players thought that guys that were on steroids were hurting their chances to excel in what they were doing too. So the players had a lot more to do with stopping this than ownership did. Ownership got egg on their face, and that's why they put their foot down, because they were looking bad in a situation where, you know, they were allowing this to happen. It'd be like a judge saying, okay, you're a criminal, but you go free because it's all right. You can't do that. You have to be fair with everybody. And I, I, think, I think that's why it made a full circle to come around and they're stopping it. But it's tarnished those guys like Bonds and McGuire for life. Forever. Yeah. Asterisk forever. Yeah. And they were doing. And Barry Bonds was probably the best hitter I ever saw because he had the ability to hit a ball that's inside and keep it fair. You know. Most guys would pull it foul, you know, by 20 feet. And, and he had the ability. And the other thing that he had, Mr. Joe, was that, like, he had such a dominant set of, of vision. Like him, when they would interview his dad, Bobby, I would, I would like, dissect his interviews of how he trained Barry and how Willie trained Barry. And, and you got to give it to those guys. Like, and, and Barry had a, a head start. I mean, he got to go to the big league parks every day for a lot of years. Then went on to become a two-time All-American at, you know, Arizona State Sun Devils. And then was a first-round draft pick of Pittsburgh. He was a stud. But what he had, in my opinion, is, like, he got one pitch a game, if that. Yeah. And he would hit that pitch. But he didn't miss it. He hit it 500 feet. It was, and he was get. I mean, he led the league three years with intentional walks. Yeah. He's got the record for intentional walks and most walks in a season. Like he wasn't seeing a lot of strikes. Yeah. And for him to not get overzealous or impatient and still be able to hit that ball, and he's not in the Hall of Fame because of the asterisk staying part of baseball history. That's that just sucks in my opinion. Yeah, but there's other other bad things that have happened to people that should be in the Hall of Fame. You know, let's take. Roger Maris hit 61 home runs uh, to break Babe Ruth's record, right? And you said Barry Bonds walked 100 times a year. He actually walked more than that, but anyway. Way more, yeah. Uh, Roger, how many times do you think they intentionally walked Roger Maris? I have no idea. Never. Never. Because Mickey Mantle was hitting behind him. Hmm. 
They wanted to get him out. Who was hitting behind Barry Bonds? He was, he was the guy on Nobody. <laughs> Bobby Bonilla for a minute. Well, that but he minute. wasn't there. Well, that was when they were in Pittsburgh. Yeah, that was when they were in Pittsburgh. And he wasn't hitting the, the home runs then as he did later. But the, the point is, a lot of it has to do with certain aspects of the game. Like Roger Maris had a great throwing arm. Roger Maris was as good an outfielder as the American League had at the time, and uh, he didn't go in the Hall of Fame because they had Mickey Mantle. You know. And that's, that's a great that's, point. That's not fair. It's not fair. You just know. based on his statistics. Somebody asked me one time why it took so long for Richie Ashburn to go in the Hall of Fame, the Phillies center fielder. I said because he played at the same time Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, and Willie Mays did. And they were comparing him to those three. Well, you can't compare anybody to those three. You know, all three of them were better outfielders than anybody that's played today. And, uh, and probably the only guy that could play with him today was Ken Griffey Jr. and he's he's retired. So you're talking about a subjective uh, judgment of how good these players are. And you know what, on any given day, a guy like Reggie Jackson, who barely hit 300, I think he hit 300 once in his career, on any given day he could beat you by himself. Well the media recognized that, so the media picked him up as a media darling. Are you gonna say, Reggie Jackson was as good as Willie Mays? No. Never. Never. But on any given day, he could beat you by himself. He could throw a guy out, he could steal a base, and he'd hit a home run. And who speaking of that real quick, who is the greatest athlete, just all around athlete? Because when I when I get in this conversation, I talk about Dave Winfield and what he achieved in so many different sports, whether it was track and field, football, basketball, baseball with the Padres and the Yankees for years. But visually, when you were watching him, who were you in awe of? I think the best all-around player I saw, and because I missed Mays and Aaron and Clemente, I think the best all-around player I ever saw was Cesar Cedeno. Cesar Cedeno. Because he played in Houston, he didn't have those 375 feet home runs. The power alleys were 390, they were what most center fields are. And uh, <clears throat> early in his career, he didn't have the teams that he had later. When he got traded to St. Louis and when he got traded to Cincinnati, he won a World Series ring playing as a part-time player. Part -time. He was just an awesome athlete. He could run, he could hit, he could throw. And uh, and like, no one would ever pick him. But if you saw him on the field live, you'd say, this is something else. <laughs> when you were behind the dish and Nolan was there, Nolan is, he was called the Texas Flamethrower. I mean, he had 5,000 strikeouts, major league record. Um, a lot of hitters, I've talked to Ricky Henderson about what it was like facing him. And they just said he was so intimidating because he didn't, like, he did not respect your space. Like, he'd throw up and in if he needed to. When, when you're in that position as an umpire, is it harder to umpire a guy like Nolan Ryan when he's throwing that hard? How do you pinpoint the strike zone and try to stay so legitimate with your calls and your, your calls for balls and strikes? Once you learn how to call at this level, the harder they throw, the easier it is. Really? The tougher pitches to call are the breaking balls at the knees, the knuckle ball. Those are much Phil Necro style. Those are much harder to call than Nolan Ryan's fastball. And uh, when he got traded to Houston, he wasn't Ryan wasn't even the first starter. J.R. Richard was. J.R. Richard, he had 95 mile an hour sliders. <laughs> you know, so he was he was as intimidating as Ryan. But a lot of Ryan's success was based on the fact that he did throw a, a few pitches where he would brush you back or he thought it made it look like he was a little bit wild. The no-hitter, I remember him having the sixth no-hitter. He was not sharp that day as far as throwing strikes, 
but he was just wild enough that the Dodgers were afraid to step in and get dug in. And they weren't digging in. No. So when you saw the night that that Texas was playing Chicago, and I know that you weren't umpiring it, but you're a fan of baseball. You had to have seen when Robin Ventura took it upon himself to charge the mound with Nolan Ryan after a, a, you know some chin music. Yeah, well, do you do you look at that as like a dumb move on, on somebody's part by Ron Ventura? Well, Is that know, disrespect? They didn't they didn't even kick Nolan out of the game that night. Oh, and he landed they, some good shots. They left him in the game because they said he didn't do anything wrong but protect himself. But when Ryan first came over to the National League, he was playing against Dave Winfield, who you mentioned earlier. Dave was with the Padres, and he threw at Winfield, and Winfield went to the mound and tried to tear him in half. And uh, it took both teams and four umpires and probably a couple of cranes to pull them apart. <laughs> and after the game, Ryan said, "You know, if I'm on pitch in this league, I, I'll probably learn how to, better learn how to defend myself." <laughs> so, so, Dave was a big boy. Yeah, Dave was huge, and and what and what a great athlete. He was a good athlete. So, but uh, Ryan was something else. You know, uh, years ago, I was walking into the Texas Stadium and. Uh, I'm walking to my locker room and coming down the tunnel is 20 people, probably more. And I, I say this all the time because one of them was Jim Sunberg and he was doing some PR work with the Rangers, the old catcher, Jim Sunberg. And I'll give him credit. My mom was one of 13. I couldn't tell you all their names, but he introduced me to every person in this group as he's coming down the hallway. And the last person he introduced me to was his wife. And I said, kind of smart aleckly, I said, well, you probably yelled at me. And she said, no, I never yelled at you, ever. But Ruth Ryan sure did. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So where I was going with that comment about Nolan and your talent behind the plate is, in today's age and, and before you retired, there is a such thing as human error. And, and, I was, and I was so against instant replay in Major League Baseball for so long because the game is slow as it is. The strategy is different than NFL or NBA or soccer or whatever. You take that human error part of it out, and I was like, man, that sucks. You're not going to have as many you know, throwdowns with Earl Weaver and Billy Martin at the dish or at first base anymore. You're not going to have Showalter you know, showing out, even though he did this year one time already. But a big part of the game to me was that interaction between manager and umpire. It, was, it wasn't WWE and it wasn't scripted. It was organic fighting. And I, but now I'm looking at it like, man, you could, you're taking away an opportunity to move on in the playoffs to, from divisional to the ALCS or the NLCS or to the World Series. Do you agree with instant replay? And, or does it show umpires up? And, and what was your attitude like if you got to call, you, you call them out and then they come back and say, oh, he's safe. Do you just have to eat it and you know bite your tongue? Well, your biggest thing with instant replay is we, we wanted it to correct our obvious mistakes. We, we weren't looking at it to be a grading system, which is basically what they're using it for now. But instant replay is one of our best teaching tools because everybody has to go into instant replay and work it at least two weeks out of the season. So our young umpires learn more in instant replay than they work on the field because they're learning from everybody's angles and everything. And if you use it as a teaching tool, it's a good thing. It's, it's like the, the machine that grades us behind the plate. Uh, and of course, they're trying to put these robotic umpires in, but the robot umpire misses 7% of its pitches, and they know that for a fact. Well, we didn't have an umpire when I worked that missed five. So the umpires are 2% better than a machine. And, uh, and it's because 
you know, they've done it more than that machine has. Right, yeah. And the, the other thing, I'm gonna tell you this cute story, it was Andy Fletcher was an umpire I was working with and I worked across from him one night. And uh, he came to me after the game the next day and he says, you know, the machine said I missed six pitches. I thought I had a good game. I said, the machine said you missed six? I said, I didn't see a pitch that you called it. I could even question. I said, how many did the machine miss? He said, oh, it didn't track 14. I says, let me get this straight. We're going to start using a machine that misses twice as many pitches as you do? Well, of course, he didn't think that was funny. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the, that's the truth. And here's the other thing. When Andy, let's say he missed a pitch, he'd either call it a ball or a strike. When the machine misses a pitch, it doesn't call anything. It's just a blank. Nothing. So how are you going to use that? Yeah, there's no stabilization on it. It just, it's just blank. And, and the fact of the matter is you, you've heard it your entire life. You know, if it's close enough for that umpire to call it a strike, it's close enough that you should have been swinging. Right. But yesterday in the major leagues, there was an umpire that threw out, it might have been the day before yesterday, he threw out a pretty popular up-and-coming star that's pretty level-headed. I ain't going to say any names because I don't, I, don't, I don't know enough about the situation, but I watched it last night and I rewound it 100 times on my phone. And the ball was seven to nine inches inside. It was a terrible call. The announcer says he's missed nine of those today. I didn't have the video evidence to go back and see those, but this one was clearly an inside, fa uh, inside fastball that was no, and it was a cut fastball, but it didn't miss the plate big time, and the catcher did a great frame job. <laughs> but this guy gets ran, his manager gets ran, and I'm just wondering, like, what goes through that umpire's mind? And did it happen to you personally to where you went back and went, damn it? Well, yeah. I missed that big time. What, what is that feeling we, like? We because all, We've all missed them. We're not perfect. We, we're human. And, um, and, and that's the funny thing about it. No one feels worse about missing a pitch or a play than the umpire himself. I mean, they could say, well, he cost me the game. Well, you know what? He didn't cost you the game because you had nine innings. The reason we give you three stri strikes and the pitcher's four balls is because it's a game of successes and failures. And that gives everybody a chance to correct something that's gone wrong. Well, the umpire doesn't have that chance. He doesn't have that luxury. Right. You can't, you can't change the call on the next pitch because you missed the other one. You gotta get them all right. And you have to strive to be perfect your first day out there and then get better. And that's one of the coolest lines that you're, you're ever told when you start umpire says, well, you had a good game, but you gotta get better. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying, you know. And that's, that's the uniqueness of this sport. What is, what is the, I guess, experience level that you have to get to to be considered uh, a veteran or a, a, the comfort level I guess it would be because home plate's a lot different than first first to second is different than being in the middle of the game because the ball's coming at you at all different angles you got to turn and look for the double play a third baseman might do something and throw it home instead of turn the double play now you got this shift on so the umpires are looking around like what the hell's going on how many years did you have to spend in the in the show before you said I know all four of these positions and I'm ready to I'm ready to umpire any game well when, when there's certain things, mechanics that you use at every base, and there's certain mechanics that you use with the experience. And like, I can remember young umpires coming up to me and saying, can you help me with plays at first base? And my first immediate response was no, because when that shortstop picks up the ball and throws it, as soon as it leaves his hand, it leaves his hand about four or five feet, I can tell you if it's online. If you can't do that, then I can't help you. And you have to experience that to where you have the ability to tell the third baseman throws the ball, is it going to be online? Well, if it's not online, now where do I go now it's not online? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I follow the first baseman up the line? And until they experience that enough, I can't help them. So they have to work in the big leagues until they have that ability 
to know exactly how to react. Because in the, as an umpire, you don't chase the ball, you react to what's going on. Where in baseball, as a player, you chase the ball, you go get it. <laughs> so would you say in person, were you a good baseball player? And as a whole, are, are most major league umpires, were they good athletes and good ball players to understand the game? Or do you get in it blind and just one day say, I'm gonna be an umpire? Like you mentioned my good friend, Travis Renninger yesterday at Steelwater Outfitters in Colorado. He was a wrestler. And he becomes a triple-A umpire, didn't make it to the show. He had a cup of water. He had a cup of coffee in the show for a few years. But um, he's good friends with Chris Guccione, another big hunter. But he was never a baseball player. Were you, in, or would you say most umpires were? Well, I don't know that most umpires were baseball players, but uh, you, you have to be a decent athlete to do this. Otherwise, you'll get left behind. I mean, uh, I, mean I played baseball in Little League, Teener League. Uh, American Legion, high school, uh, but then I got a football scholarship. In fact, when the football, came, came, football coach came to my house and told my mother I was going to get a full scholarship, and, and she said, what does that entail? I says, well, a room and board, and da, da, da. she said, excuse me, you'll pay for his meals? And, my, and the coach said, well, yes, ma'am, we'll pay for all his meals. She looked at me and said, you will play football. <laughs> so I was done there. <laughs> she was tired of feeding your ass, huh? She was over it. She knew that you how much you cost her in grocery bills. I think the umpires have to be a decent athlete. You, you don't have to be the world-class athlete like, like Mike Trout, but uh, because you won't have to do the same things he does. But you, just working home plate, you got to get up and down and call 300 to 500 pitches in a game. I mean... Your knee's got to just be There's red. a lot of, yeah, I've already had one replaced. Have <laughs> so. you? Transitioning back to the, athlete, the, the player side of this, because I want to go in and out because I know how important umpiring is to the overall game. I mean, you can't have baseball without umpires. What is your opinion personally of Pete Rose? It's a huge argument over the last three decades. He did make a mistake. Yeah. He bet on the game of baseball as a player manager. He bet on his own team. They say allegedly they don't have a lot of proof if he did or not. But he's one of the, he's the greatest hitter of all time with over 4,100 hits. Should he be in the Hall of Fame, yes or no? Well, let's put it in perspective because when you have a Hall of Fame and you want people to be in your Hall of Fame, you have to be of good character. I think if Pete would repent and do good things in the community like he should, uh, they would look at him in a different light. Um, and you also need to be probably the best best or one of the best players on the teams you played on. Well, if you looked at the Cincinnati Reds team. The big red machine. They had Johnny Bench, he's in the Hall of Fame. They had Tony Perez, he's the first base, he's in the Hall of Fame. Joe Morgan's in the Hall of Fame. When Pete came up to the big leagues, he was a second baseman. When they got Joe Morgan, they moved Pete to left field. And when they got George Foster, they moved Pete to third. They had a shortstop named Dave Concepcion, who was the without question the best shortstop in baseball at the time. Pete played third. Foster got 150 RBIs with that team. Cesar Geronimo was the best defensive outfielder in baseball and the right fielder was Ken Griffey Sr. Now you wanna, let's put Pete next to every one of those guys. Pete's the worst player on his team. I've never looked at it that way. And, and, and I'm not saying that's bad. Right. I mean, if Pete Rose is your worst player, you're pretty good. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> and he got more hits than anybody. And, but he needs to clean up his act. And I'm, I would say that to him if he was sitting here today. Because uh, baseball needs 
the special people like Pete Rose. Baseball needs these kind of guys. You know, everybody talked about Tommy Lasorda and how pompous he was, but baseball needed guys like Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda was Dodger blue, this, that, and that. And, and you need people like that. Uh, I, ha I have trouble, I mean, I look at guys like Lee Smith, great reliever for the Cubs. What took him so long to get in the Hall of Fame? What kept him out of the Hall of Fame? You can't, I mean, what are these writers? And for the life of me, who was the writer that didn't vote for Joe DiMaggio? Who was the writer that didn't vote for Willie Mays? Who was, the, who was the writer that didn't vote for Hank Aaron? Yeah. You know, one writer didn't vote for Derek Jeter. And as good a player as Derek Jeter was, he's not as good as those guys I just named. There was a quote the other night in Major League Baseball by Manny Ramirez. He was a guest host in the, in the uh, commentating booth in, at, Fen at Fenway. And he made a comment that's gone kind of viral that if you put Jeter in Kansas City, he's not in the Hall of Fame and he doesn't have that career. If he had to play at Boston, New York, or Los Angeles, he wasn't that type of player. Or he may, may have been, but he never had a chance to prove it. You know, like, he, he, he was on the stage at New York all the time. But his career, if you put that career in Kansas City, he doesn't have the accolades that he does. They wouldn't know who he was. They wouldn't know who he was, right? Well, that, that's a valid point, but there's also something you have to look at here, and this is a good thing about Pete Rose. Pete Rose never complained when they moved him from second base to left field. He never complained when they moved him from left field to third base. He was a team player, and that's what Derek Jeter was. Derek Jeter was a leader and a team player. Pete was more of the catalyst than he was the leader because they had plenty of leaders. They already had, you know, the Big Red Machine had the best, probably best eight players that have ever been assembled at one time. But Jeter was a leader, and, 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 he, believed, and he was the catalyst in the lineup if he'd get on base, there was a good chance they were going to score. So, and Pete was the same way. But they're two different personalities, you know, you look at it. And Ramirez may be right. If he, if he hadn't played in New York, maybe he didn't get the same publicity. Maybe he wouldn't have gone in the Hall of Fame by just one vote missing. It might have been two or three, but he'd have made it. <laughs> yeah, I could, when I heard that, I, you, you, when, when people say things like that, I got to, before I'd just jump on it and be like, you're full of shit. Like, there's no way. Like, gee. But then when you look at it, like the different levels of business and what Steinbrenner did to build that and the legacy of the Dodgers and what they've done at Fenway with Boston, it is different to go to a small market team like Kauffman Stadium. Even though the team's valued at billions, yeah. they don't have the, the national presence that these bigger organizations do. No. So it put it into perspective of like Jeter was in the limelight every day. Yeah. And it is also amazing, I was talking to these guys the other day, that he never had a bad report come out on him, never a bad headline. Like, he did a great job as a person in the community, like you just touched on about Pete Rose. Like, I've heard, like, when you would go to a party or get together, like, no cell phones were allowed. There was never going to be any pictures taken or videos. He just did a great job, and his management did a great job. But back to umpiring and, and mixing it with personalities like you just touched on, the managers now, the fights that would take place, did it become kind of a position of you to where you would just kind of like roll your eyes like here we go again or did it did you have to prepare yourself for like if you went into a game where you knew there was a hothead manager that was known for that did you have to like really prepare yourself and, and really shake yourself once in a while not to cause that or did you just call your game and if it happened you had to be ready to or did you just laugh it off most of the time well for the most part when I started uh, and I came to the big leagues the first time, they wanted to know who you were, what your personality was like. They'd ask kids on the bench, do you have this guy in the minor leagues? 
what, what's he like? Can you talk to him? Can you say anything to him? You know. And uh, of course, when I came up, I had the reputation of kicking people out. Yeah. So my crew chief came over in Atlanta. He was working second base, and I was working third. He says, uh, "Did you kick out 50 people in the minor leagues last year?" I says, "No, I didn't kick out 50 people the entire time I've been umpire." He said, "Well, they think you did, so don't tell them any different." <laughs> so, and <clears throat> if they think you'll kick them out, they'll behave a little bit better. But if if you show any sign of weakness or you're going to back down. What does it take to get ran, Joe? What would it take to, to well, piss you off enough to run me? That's one of my favorite stories. We're doing a spring training game in, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. And Steve Ripley's a plate umpire. He was a National League umpire. Back then, we had National League umpires and American League umpires. And so Steve's rubbing up the baseball. And Gene Shallot came to the locker room. He wants to do a little impromptu interview, right? So he was asking Steve about rubbing up the baseballs. And, Steve picked up one, he just rubbed it, he says, this is the work piece. And then he picked up a brand new one and he said, this is the show piece. And then a couple questions, and then he looked at Larry Young, who was a longtime American League umpire, and he says, Larry, what do I have to say to you to get kicked out of the game? And I know Larry had thought about it because it was a classic answer. He said, call me something I'm not. And I said, yeah, tell him he's good looking. That'll get you kicked out of the game. So, <laughs> and of course, that was the big line of the interview. <laughs> That's what they remember. So what would it take you to run a person? What does it take? Does he, does, does he personally get into your dish and call you a mother? Ever? Yeah, if he, he says something like that, he's automatically gone. And he, he can't do something to show you up. He can't wave his arms. He can't kick dirt. He can't act like a child. And I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, you're the judge jury and executioner on the field and as long as you don't abuse that privilege you, you've done your job I mean your your first responsibility uh, in is to the game of baseball and that doesn't mean the commissioner's office that means the game so if I let you come out there and act like a complete jerk I'm not being responsible to the game of baseball because we're supposed to show people what sportsmanship's like if you had a 12-year-old that acts like a child, you take him home and either spank him or send him to his room. Well, you can't spank these big league ball players. So if you don't discipline them, then that little 12-year-old or that little eight-year-old thinks, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do when I don't agree with the umpire. Well, no, that's not what you do, and it shouldn't be. It's a great way to look at then, it. Secondly, your second responsibility is to your profession. Well, if I don't take care of my problems, and discipline the guy that's acting like a fool in front of me. How can I expect the guy behind me to have to put up with something because I didn't do my job? And my third responsibility is do what I know in my heart is morally honest and correct. And if you do those three things in that order, you've done your job. And you can't worry about whether they like you or not because that's just not going to happen. They're not going to like you because you do your job. I mean, they may respect you for it, but they're not going to like you because you're looked at as part of the process of them getting to do something. Which is like, if you look back on the years when you were in school, the, the grade school teacher that you remember was the ones that were hardest on you and made you do your homework, made you do everything the right way. And that, that's no different. It's, it's, I think that's a great seminar series that you should do for, <laughs> I'm serious, like most major league, or most baseball, most sports fans don't look at it that way. Well, of course not, they because they're pulling for one team or the other. Right, but they always, they always put the athlete or, as the icon. That's, you know, that's their legend. That's their role model. 
the, nobody ever looks at it the way that you just described. I don't know if I've ever looked at it the way you just described about umpiring. But that's the way it should be, you know. That's awesome. It's, um, I mean, the the highest paid person in the band is the Frank Sinatra or the Merle Haggard or so on and so on, right? And uh, he has to behave himself or he destroys everybody in the band. When he doesn't perform well, everybody suffers. So you have to look at what you're doing as part of being above the fray. And that doesn't mean taking a lot of guff because it means that you have to do your job the right way. And so you have to look at it that way. And, and when you do and you, and you look at it through the eyes of an umpire, an eye from somebody like, okay, there's a policeman here and you disrespected him and he arrests you. You go in a courtroom and you disrespect him, you're going to jail. <laughs> you know. From the cop to the judge. We, we, don't, we don't put him in jail. Can't. And we try to keep him in the game, you know, so. So looking at it through the eyes of an umpire, explain to me 1983, New York Yankees, Kansas City Royals, Billy Martin comes out of the dugout after George Brett hits a home <laughs> run to right field. He grabs the bat and he looks at the umpire and he's telling, he's mouthing something to the umpire. The announcers don't know what he's saying. George Brett's sitting in the dugout next to Gaylord Perry. He doesn't know what's going on. But then he's, they start getting worried, and you know the quote of George Brett. If he comes over here and throws me out, I'm going out there after that. Yeah. The umpire's like 6'4". He was personal he's friends bigger than, He's bigger, he's bigger than, than, that. than that. So <laughs> through the eyes of an umpire, explain to me the pine tar incident. And does the umpire make the right call? Because did he know the rule book better than the Royals did or better than George Brett? Because you would think that the coach or somebody would say, George, you got too much pine tar on your bat. Something's going on. How does that incident look through the eyes of an umpire? Well, the Yankees knew he had too much pine tar, so they waited for him to hit a ball that hurt him. And they went out and appealed, and the umpires called it exactly right. And George came out there not knowing what he was going to run to into, <laughs> and set the infield on fire. And then, uh, and then the American League president overruled the umpires. He said it was not in the, in the spirit of the game to call George Brett out, which was wrong. That was the wrong ruling. And, uh, but then again, that league president was known for being soft on the players. He didn't fine them. He didn't suspend them. If that happened in the National League, they might have suspended George, you know, but it, it happened in the American League. And a lot, of, a lot of the problems they had in the American League were due to the backing of the umpires. You know, and um, we, we were pretty lucky. When I came up in the National League, they backed us up. They'd back you up even if you made a mistake because you were the authority figure. And, uh, and you have to look at it. When a teacher makes a mistake in class, you don't go out and set her house on fire. You know, and that, you can't do that. It's the same thing. Our, our society kind of mirrors baseball. If you'll notice how people and children act, when you make a, a ruling in court and people start to burn down a city for it, what are we thinking? You have to go stop them from doing that. And they have to learn that's the wrong way to handle things. Our, our society is, is getting to the point where there's lawlessness taking over and that's not right. So in way are you saying that our city leaders and our political leaders should follow the ethics of baseball to run a tighter ship in America? Absolutely. I like that. There's another seminar series for you.
because I'm tired of it too. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. But also in baseball, some of the things that are hard to watch are, um, you know, some of the things that were so vivid of when I was coming up. Of I, I love the idea of pitchers hitting, and now you know you have the National League getting away from that. As an umpire, when you would watch a pitcher walk up to the plate in the nine hole, was it a waste of the of time. I mean, I get that some pitchers could swing it, and there was some that you know you got Bumgarner that would hit, you know, go yard once in a while. Yeah. But was it a waste of time? Like when you'd watch him walk up, like, do I really even have to call balls and strikes against this guy? What was the mindset? Because now they've gotten away from that. Now they're going to the DH in both leagues. And do you agree with that, or did you like the idea of pitchers hitting in the nine hole? Well, I've said this before that the DH has slowed down the game, and they're trying to speed it up. And the reason it slows down the game is because. In the old National League, let's take a pitcher like Tom Seaver. If he threw more than nine pitches to the seventh, eighth, and ninth hitter, one of them fouled off a two-strike pitch. He was that deadly in on the, the bottom of the in lineup. The, in the American League, they don't have the ninth hitter being the pitcher. So they pitch the ninth hitter, the eighth hitter, and the seventh hitter just like their Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, and Lou Gehrig. Oh, that's a great point. So that they get to the end of the lineup, they're pitching him the same tough way they pitched two, three, and four in the lineup. And that slows down the game. It does. Another thing, guys like Earl Weaver, Billy Martin, they burned out pitchers that they didn't have to because they'd leave the starting pitcher in seven, eight, and nine innings when they would have taken them out for a pinch hitter because the game's on the line. So the pitchers in the American League were pitching more innings than the pitchers in the National League. You see what I'm saying? 100%. Makes total sense. So it's it's not good for baseball for the DH to even be in in existence. Okay, here's the it was it was not a good rule when it was put in play, and I know this because Ron Fairley told Joe Morgan when they put it in place, he said, "All this does is give the pitcher carte blanche to throw it whoever he wants to, because he doesn't have to come to bat. He doesn't have to come up to play anymore, yeah. and get his own chin music." What about this new rule? of extra innings with a runner on second. This is crazy to me. Like, this is T-ball stuff. I'm serious. Like, I look, I've been to live games this season where I'm seeing this guy run out there with no outs, extra innings, and he's on second base. I'm like, this is not baseball. This is crazy. Let me give you the best example. Harvey Haddock had a perfect game for 14 innings. What would he have felt like if you're going to put a runner on second base in the 10th, 11th, and 12th innings? Yeah, he's losing it. He's losing the shutout. That's not completely changes the way you pitch. It's not fair. I mean, he kept everybody off base, and now you're going to put him out there because of a rule that a a couple of lawyers made up? It's nuts, right? Okay, now what about the other rule that they're saying could be going away in this shift? Because this isn't baseball to me. I understand strategy, and I understand scouting reports, but when you have every single one of your infield, I mean, the third baseman is in – in shallow right field sometimes on a lefty that knows that they're going to pull the ball. Well, why don't you bunt it? Yeah, why don't you bunt him over and try to get an outside pitch, but the pitcher's trying to throw him inside to play to the shift. Should the shift be taken out of baseball, Joe? No, if they're too stupid that they can't hit it the other way, they should be out. But well, how are you going to hit a 97-mile-an-hour fastball in the inner part of the plate to the other side of the field? Let me ask you this. They, they asked Rod Carew, what would you hit if they put the shift on you? He said 900. <laughs> <laughs> So I hit 900. He hit 900. He probably would. He's one of the greatest. Of course, he also said he was the honorary captain of the American League All-Star team. They, they went to Dustin Pedroia asked him. He said, uh, he said, what's your favorite song that you like to listen to? He said, the national anthem. 
He said, the national anthem? I said, yeah. I said, why is that your favorite song? He said, because I knew when I heard it, I was going to get two hits. <laughs> uh, Ricky Henderson said a quote to me like that one day. He said, uh, I said, how many triples you hit? He said, not many. I said, what? You had the best speed. He goes, I just stopped at second so I could steal third. <laughs> he said that to me. I just, I freaking love that guy. Do, do, you, do you look at the game today and think that it's changing for the better with all of the new, you know, like they're, everything from social media to the, to the instant replay to the shift to putting the runner on second. Is baseball better today? And it's called, I'm asking this because this is America's game. This is the national pastime. There's more history since Abner Doubleday brought this to us than, in my opinion, than any other sport. And I know that there's Greco-Roman wrestling, and I know that soccer's the most viewed sport in the world, and I know NASCAR has a huge audience. Is baseball better today than it was, let's just say, 70s and 80s? Well, I don't think so because the pitchers aren't throwing as many strikes. And I think baseball's not as good today as it was when I started. I think they're trying to make these changes to try to get more interest in it. I, I think the DH was put in because they think they want more offense. I don't think they put it in for any other reason. They want more offense in the game because they want more excitement. And I, I heard a statement about a week ago about the, uh, uh, the excitement of a game and how long it lasts. Well, if a game goes three hours and there's a lot of things happening, it's a good game to watch. But if the game goes three hours and every other hitter's getting walked, it's not a good game. No. So as long as something's happening and you're seeing a lot of, I mean, I had Dwight Gooden and Nolan Ryan in a playoff game and they struck out everybody but the Bat Boys. Wow. And it was an interesting game to watch because this was two masterpieces pitching against each other. And it was, it was a great game. And, and it still went over two hours and a half. But it went extra innings, and somebody won on a ground ball to the infield. And that was, that was how the game was won. But nobody hit those guys. So that was, that was New York against Houston? Yeah. Doc Gooden. So this was what, maybe like 1989, 88, 89? 86, maybe. 86. He was a rookie then, right? He was, like he was young, yeah. He was young. It was him and Strawberry. Yeah. Come up at the same time. Yeah. Great team. When you start looking at the, the career that you had, you umpired the Chicago Cubs going to the World Series for the first time since like 1917 or it had been over 100 years or right around 100 years, a century. What was the aura like? What, was, it your, was it like your biggest stage of your career to be in that, in that instance? How many, how many World Series did you umpire and was that kind of your biggest stage when, when they went back, to, when it came back to Wrigley? I had, uh, I had six World Series. And I had two of them that only went four games, so they were my favorites. <laughs> and one of them was a the Chicago team. The White Sox beat the Astros in four. But uh, the funny thing about the Wrigley Field Cleveland uh, World Series is when we, got, when we got to Cleveland for the last games, there were more Cubs fans in the stands than there were Cleveland fans. Really? Yeah, because people sold their tickets. Yeah. Making money off it. There was uh, what is that? A two-hour drive. Uh, we did drive it. We left from uh, from Chicago and drove over. It's not too far, but even, so they knew that they could get big money for, to sell them to the Chicago fans that could get there no problem. So that I mean, but it was, what was good about that World Series was it didn't matter who won; it was going to be historic. 
because Cleveland hadn't won either, <laughs> you know. Cleveland hadn't won a World Series in, I don't know, 50 years, more than that. And so it didn't matter who won, it was going to be good for baseball. <clears throat> and uh, of course the guy, <clears throat> the guy that died and went to hell that week after the Cubs won, and he he was down there, and <clears throat> the devil had a had an uh, air conditioner contractor who died a couple weeks before, and he said, "I can cool this place off if you'll let me." Right. So when the Cubs won the World Series, the elevator came downstairs, and this guy stepped off the elevator and said, "It's freezing over in hell. The Cubs must have won the World Series." You know? <laughs> <laughs> His feet were feet were getting cold. With the ethics of baseball and as an umpire, when you look back at what the Astros pulled off three years ago, did this make the game look dumb? Should they have been caught earlier? Did they get away with something that was, I mean, it wasn't obvious, but I mean, they got away they with were all, something. They were all doing it. They were just doing it the wrong way. They're all doing it. They all have a spotter in the outfield looking at pitches. He'll put a sweater over his shoulder. <laughs> I mean... They all do it. It's not, they all do it. That's nothing new. They've been doing that since baseball started. They've been cheating since the, the, the origins. Well, not to that extent where you bang on a trash can. I mean, that was pretty bad. But, uh, you, you know, and that's another thing. Why can't you do it the right way, <laughs> you know? I mean, I understand the guy's on second base and he steals a sign from the catcher and he bends his arm as the breaking pitch and he straightens his arm as the fastball, but do it the right way. Don't. Don't try to use electronics to cheat. Don't try to do it. I could talk to you for hours, and I know that you're on vacation. You're in Nashville. You don't have a lot of time because I love talking baseball. It's there's nothing like talking baseball. Like in my, for me, I love to talk hunting. I love to talk music, and I love to talk baseball. Um, do you love the game? Oh yeah. Is it the best game? Is it the best sports? Well, it, it's such a unique sport because you got to hit a round ball with a cylindrical bat, and you got to hit it square, and then you got to hit it where they can't catch it. Hardest thing to do in all sports, scientifically proven. It's no question. And then uh, even if you fail seven out of ten times. You're an all-star. The 300 hitter is going in the Hall of Fame, you know. But uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a unique sport. And you know what? It's typically American because it's, as soon as something happens and it doesn't go your way, just like any American, they're always trying to blame somebody else. And they're usually trying to blame us. <laughs> <laughs> always the umpire, huh? Even in, it's amazing going to like Little League games now and seeing these parents go nuts on umpires. It's, I'm like, that dude is volunteering. Yeah. Like, you're crazy. He's out there doing his best. Hot seat, Jack Daniels hot seat with Mr. Joe West. Major League Baseball umpire. Over 5,400 games umpire. Yep. Congratulations on a great career. Thank you. Amazing career. I've heard both ways. People loved you and a lot of people didn't because well, of the, you, you did part your job. Of it. <laughs> you did your job. Thank you for mentioning the Hobbs family. They roll out the red carpet. Barrett's amazing. His son Harrison's here. The family's, I wish I'd known his dad and his grandpa. I wish I would've. I got to meet his uncle over at John A's. You were over there last night. I didn't, my phone didn't ring, so I was waiting on it to get an invite to come over there and eat a steak oh. with you. <laughs> Jack Daniels hot, hot seat with Mr. Joe West, Major League Baseball umpire. What was the best park to umpire in? What was your favorite audience, favorite fans, favorite stadium? Well, you know, before they put up the lights, I used to like Wrigley Field, because when it'd get dark, you could quit. And we used to make happy hour. 
<laughs> and now they put those damn lights up. We were having trouble making last call, you know. <laughs> and what would happy hour be? Were you a cold beer guy or are you a whiskey oh, yeah. guy? What were you? All of the above? I'll never, I'll never forget. Uh, I was playing golf in San Diego, and I'm playing with the beverage director for the, the, uh, the hotel there. And uh, he said, uh, where do you like to go for steaks in Chicago? And I said, Gene uh, uh, and Giorgetti's. I said, the saloon. I said, uh, Lowry's. I said, I said, the consort room. And he, he says, well, what about Gibson's? I said, that's a piano bar. And I'd been going to Chicago for like 10 years and never got past the piano bar at Gibson's. Gibson's one of the best steakhouses in the world. <laughs> but I never got past the piano bar. <laughs> they just belly said, out right there. Huh? He said, my wife is the maitre d' there. My ex-wife's the maitre d' there. So I, from then on, I would go see Kathy at, the, at Gibson's in Chicago. Out of every player you ever umpired, if there was one that you could watch every night and umpire every night, who would it have been? Well, those pitchers can't pitch every night, <laughs> so uh, Seaver was probably the best pitcher I ever saw. He was, he was Greg Maddox at about 10 more miles an hour. You just could pinpoint it. Yeah, and uh, but uh, Bonds was probably the best left-handed hitter I ever saw. Pujols may be the best right-handed hitter I ever saw. Uh, but uh, you know one of the nicest players we had? Because he'd sign autographs right up till the game started with Dale Murphy, another guy. Most valuable player two years in a row. Uh, why isn't he on, in the Hall of Fame? I, I mean, this know. is a perfect, perfect person to put in, and a good ambassador for the game. Just he has a great steakhouse in Atlanta too. Yeah. Have you eaten there? Yep. Great place. Great athlete. Yeah. He was a stud athlete all the way around. Yeah. He was awesome, and and a good guy. You know, uh, your friend George Brett was a good guy too. He's but I didn't have him except in spring training. And it was really funny. He, he used to come to the bat every time when he just started in the American League. And he'd look back at the umpire and he'd say, oh, my favorite umpire, nice to see you. Well, he'd say that. It took the American League umpires five years to realize he was saying that to every one of them. You know? <laughs> I love that guy. There's a story that you need to look up. I'll tell you about it off camera about spring training. It was just a few years ago, George Brett. He was talking to some of the rookies in the rookie league team. And it's it's... It's on YouTube, and it's it's uh, viral, as they would call it. But I'll tell you how to look it up. It involves uh, uh, all-you-can-eat crab legs in Vegas oh, yeah. and then getting on a plane and flying to Scottsdale the next morning. I'll tell you more about it when we're off. When you, uh, when you think about Nashville and you think about where you live in Fort Lauderdale, which is one of my favorite places in the country. I love the intercoastal. I love offshore fishing. I know Mr. Barrett does, too. Um, is, is retirement the way to go? Do you love it? Do you enjoy it? Because you seem like you like to keep going. Are you a kick well, your shoes off and lay on a hammock guy, or is it hard for you to slow down now? No, you know, I don't kick my shoes off. I just keep, keep going. I just keep going in a different direction. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and uh, I've done a lot of charity work this year. I'm, this is the third charity golf tournament I've done since the baseball season started. And uh, so this is it's, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. And these are the kinds of things that I can do now that I couldn't do when I was umpiring because of the time of year. Yeah. So, and like I said, I, this, this profession opened a lot of doors for me and uh, made a lot of friends. Uh, when I, my, my game that I broke the record for most games ever umpired was in Chicago on May 25th. 
It was the most expensive game I ever worked because I had to buy over 130 tickets. <laughs> so, and even the owner of the team, Jerry Reinsdorf, says, I can't give you the tickets. I'm sorry. I got to charge you for them. <laughs> he owned the Bulls too, right? Yeah, he owned the Bulls too. Yeah. He had, he had an interesting story about that where he said, I was asked if I wanted to buy a portion of this team. And I said, why would I buy a portion when I can buy it all? So he bought it. And that year that he bought the team, he had, they had drafted this kid from North Carolina named Michael Jordan. And the scouting report was he only scored 18 points in, the, in college. He only averaged 18 points. And I said, that's because he, he played for Dean Smith. <laughs> so, yeah, he said, if they'd have known what they had uh, when they drafted him, I'd have never been able to buy this team. <laughs> no, he got lucky. Well, congratulations, man. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure meeting you and having you on the show. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. I need to get you on mine. I'd love to. I'm on, on uh, the podcast uh, 5460, the Joe West podcast. So I'm ready to go whenever Tune we Tune in, okay? Maybe uh, Barrett and I will come down to Fort Lauderdale. We'll, go, we'll uh, do that. We'll go catch some mahi, grill up some tacos, <laughs> and do a podcast. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Joe West. That Good was to awesome. see you. Good All to right. see you.